Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. So we're going to open the Word of God together now. I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 6. We're reading from verse 1 to 7. I'll be reading from the NIV 11. That's Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews amongst them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from amongst you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn the responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We delight in that you speak to us through it. Help us tonight to hear from you, to hear your words, to understand how your unstoppable gospel goes through this world and how you use the church in order to reach these goals. We pray, Lord, that we would see you clearly understand what you have to say to us and serve you in our whole lives. Amen. Well, I wonder if you wanted to take down an organisation, how do you think you'd go about doing it? If you really didn't like an organisation and what they're all on about, how would you go about to make sure they failed? What do you reckon? What are some of the things that you might choose to do? Any ideas? Sorry? Boycott. Boycott them. That's a pretty good one. False rumours. Yeah. Any other ideas? Sue them. Sue them. Yeah. Hit them at the bottom line. Absolutely. What would we do? How would we go about doing it? Where would the weaknesses be? Where would the pressure points be that we could push? The place we could push to have our best return on our investment? Well, you turn to trusty old Google. And they reckon there's three surefire ways to actually take down an organisation. Good old Mimecast says, technical failure, targeted attacks and human error are three surefire ways to take down any organisation. Apparently, there's people out there that just want to take organisations down. Terrifies me, but that's apparently the way it goes. It turns out a corrupt file on your server some malicious malware or even a misguided derrick from accounting can be the catalyst for disaster. So if you were trying to take down an organisation, here are three areas that you would push on. There's corruption, there's persecution, and there's distraction. These three areas are places you'd push if you wanted to take someone down. Now, we've seen it happen all the way through the media. 
The Australian cricket team taken down in a single-handed act of corruption, brought down by poor leadership. So just think how long it's going to take to restore the character of the Australian cricket team. One act of corruption, one act of cheating, and it's still taking its toll. It's going to be decades to restore credibility. We've got long memories, don't we? Anyone know something about some underarm ball in 1981? (laughs) See, we're still talking about that. That was 1981. One ball, a single disastrous act of corruption, and it takes down an organisation. We still cop flack about that bowling fiasco. How long do you reckon we're going to remember Sandpapergate? See, corruption destroys organisations. Who can forget the uh, Cooper's Light Bible Society partnership? Or should I say potential partnership? So after a video released discussing same-sex marriage, there was a nationwide response calling to boycott the Cooper's brand, with pubs and clubs across the nation refusing to sell Coopers until they backflipped on every one of their convictions. And sad to say, they did. See, it was a targeted attack on Coopers, and it was largely successful. See, it's amazing backflip. Targeted persecution to achieve a goal, and it worked. They absolutely smashed it in terms of taking down Coopers, taking down their ideology, what they wanted to achieve. Now, if you've seen the news this week, you'll have noticed George Pell's conviction was announced a man who was supposed to protect the lowest, the last, and the least, he's been convicted of doing violence against the ones he was supposed to protect. Now, understanding full well that the judicial process uh, involves the appeals uh, and understanding that it's a very sensitive issue for many people, I don't actually want to discuss the issues associated with what's going on with the conviction. All I want to do is highlight the massive distraction that this whole tragic set of circumstances is to the going out of the gospel. True or false, it is a major distraction from the work of the gospel. It is taking trust in institutional religion and it's thrown it away. See, lack of trust, distraction, take down organisations like you wouldn't believe. But it turns out not much has changed in the last 2,000 years because corruption, persecution and distraction were then and still are now the primary tools used to try and take down the church, try and take down organisations. Now, who do you think when this blossoming church, this unstoppable force of the gospel is developing, who do you think actually wants to take down the gospel? I mean, we've made a couple of them through the first six chapters of Acts, but who's trying to take down this gospel force? See, the book of Acts, we see the birth of the New Testament church starting in Jerusalem and going out to the ends of the earth in fulfilment of the Matthew 28 uh, Great Commission, saying, go out and make disciples of all nations. How great is it that we see Gentiles included in the body of Christ? See, it's a beautiful slice of history And we see the unstoppable force of the word of God penetrating through society. See, there is explosive growth. In chapter 2 of Acts, we see 3,000 people being added to their number. How do you think you would cope if 3,000 extra people rocked up next week? 
That, now, that's a logistical nightmare you'd love, wouldn't it? Probably have to move down to the uh, Adelaide Oval. But see, can you just fathom for a moment, 3,000 people. Think about the explosive growth. Think about what's going on and the power of the gospel to transform so many people in such a short space. So it's a great problem to have, but not everyone was happy about it. Not, not everyone was happy about this explosive growth. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, well, they're actually pretty cranky. See, John Stott suggests there's someone else who isn't all that pleased too in the growth of the kingdom. We actually see him referenced a little bit later on in our passage. But that's Satan himself. We see Satan absolutely annoyed at the growth of this church. And it's interesting we see the Pharisee and the teachers of the Lord signing with Satan. That's the reality of what's going on. See, the prince of darkness, this temporary and fake ruler, the devil and his earthly minions, the teachers of the law, have resolutely set their minds on taking down the church. We look at the life of Paul. He was resolutely set out to kill every Christian he could find. The destruction of the church was their top priority. And the three tools they're trying to use, it's corruption, it's persecution, and it's distraction. See, that's the story of the last chapter and a bit. Acts chapter 5 and chapter 6 show us a couple of these tools that Satan and uh, the Pharisees and teachers of the law are trying to get along. So in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, probably looked at that a couple of weeks ago, we see Ananias and Sapphira wanting to present a falsehood to the apostles. They want to appear as though they are generous when they're actually holding things back for themselves. They want a slice of the pie rather than handing over the needs that we see being met in Acts chapter 2. Everyone uh, shared what they had in common. They looked after one another clearly. So they wanted their cake but also to eat it. And the apostles will have none of it. They dodged that bullet. They dodged this opportunity for corruption. And it hits Ananias and Sapphira. It strikes them down. So this is an opportunity here for people to be distracted from the word of God. This corruption has the opportunity at this moment to take down the church. But the word will not be stopped. This unstoppable force will continue and the word continues to be proclaimed. Later on in chapter 5, immediately preceding our particular passage, uh, we see the apostles dragged before the Sanhedrin. And what's the desired outcome? What are they trying to achieve? The Sanhedrin are trying to silence the voice, stop the words of God going out. All the way through chapter 5, from uh, verse 17 all the way through to 41, we see him, stop it, no more, don't talk about the gospel. We're listening to God, not you guys. No, seriously, we're going to have you flogged. We don't care. Are we going to listen to God or are we going to listen to you? You can't stop the gospel. See, there's a persecution that is clear and obvious, is a persecution that is just absolutely amazing. The apostles get flogged, and what do they do? What's their response? They rejoice. They rejoice that they are counted worthy of suffering for the name, suffering, uh, suffering disgrace for Jesus. See, Satan's onto his second uh, trick, and he's failing miserably. He can't, he can't get anything out of them. See, the word of God is going to spread whether Satan likes it or not. 
I think it's summed up best uh, by a bloke by the name of Gamaliel in chapter uh, 5. It's a name I probably would have called my son if I could get it past Megan. I think this guy's pretty wise. It's, uh, yeah, on second thoughts, that maybe wouldn't have been a good idea. But you see, what I love about this guy is he just applies logic. He says, listen, if this particular group of people are from God, they're unstoppable. If they're from men, just let them go. They'll fail eventually. See, remember those blokes from back in the day, they did something and no one cared and then everything went back to normal? If these disciples are of human origin, it's going to fail. There's nothing you can do about it and we can just go back to restoring the status quo. But if they're from God, if they are men of God, speaking the word of God, nothing can stop them. All you'll do is find yourself fighting against God. It's amazing wisdom, isn't it? It doesn't stop the Pharisees flogging them and and, uh, setting them free. But there's amazing wisdom. wants to understand that there can be wisdom even on the wrong side of the story. See, that's of course, uh, the gospel's unstoppable. That's of course unless they get distracted from their mission. So I think Satan's actually saving his best trick for last. And that's, I think, the main focus of what's going on in the first seven uh, verses of chapter six. What's the most effective way to bog down a church? What do you reckon? It's to distract them from their vision. See, it's hard to preach the word when you're distracted by other things, isn't it? It's hard to preach the word when you're distracted by all things. So our church, our vision is reach the city, reach the world with the gospel of Jesus. It's a um, repurposing of the Matthew 28 kind of concept. It's pretty standard kind of, we want the gospel to go out. We want to be part of this unstoppable gospel and we actually want to be on the right side of that equation. But you see, it's pretty hard to reach the city and reach the world with the gospel of Jesus when you're concerned about reaching your budget lines when you're concerned about reaching more people on your social media platforms. See, distraction makes us think we're on the right track, but we're losing sight of the gospel. Distraction is such a major tool in Satan's arsenal. And today's passage gives us a pathway through it. See, Satan attempted to distract Jesus from his mission back in Luke, the prequel to Acts, But Jesus doesn't bite. There's a beautiful moment in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus resolutely, literally sets his face for Jerusalem. He literally points his head towards the cross and says, that's where I'm going. That's my mission. Just try and distract me all you want. My face is resolutely set for Jerusalem. He fixes his eyes on the cross and refuses to take them off. It's a beautiful picture. See, it's a trait that's passed on to the apostles. But this time on the other side of the cross looking back, they fixed their eyes on that same cross. Now called to action to spread the good news of Jesus, the word of God, they resolutely set their face for gospel proclamation. It's unstoppable. All the things Satan's trying to throw at them, they just go off him like like water off a duck's back. So recently I watched a movie called The Impossible um, and it's a true story 
about a family who survived the tsunami a few years back. And apart from the fact that I didn't sleep for about two or three days afterwards, it's absolutely terrifying, I was amazed at the sheer power of water moving through those uh, seaside villages. It was absolutely amazing. There was just carnage. Nothing could stop this, uh, this wall of water. People were swept away. Destruction was rampant. A bucket? Well, it would have been useless. A building? Well, it's a mere speed bump. See, in the same way, the word of God is unstoppable. But instead of spreading destruction, it's eternal life that is sweeping through the nations. It's a beautiful picture of power, but eternal life power. You see, we do encounter a hurdle here in chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. What's the first thing we see? There's infighting. There's concern about one group of people being prioritised over another, which is an issue. We need to take it seriously. But you see, what's really going on? Is there favouritism? See, Luke doesn't record the actual events. He records the complaints, the discontent, the feeling that there is just not justice here. See, right now we've got the seed of a conflict that can blow apart a church. See that chair over there? No. See the chair that's out in the back room? I moved that chair one week, a quarter of an inch, popped a barrage. You see, really tiny things can have a big impact. Really tiny distractions can take our eyes off Jesus and put it onto church management. And that is the worst thing that could ever possibly happen. Where are we in this passage? Where's our location? See, we're in Jerusalem, aren't we? See, this is the start of the blossoming church. The gospel hasn't yet gone out. We're not that far along in Acts yet. We're sitting in here and we've got Jewish people, Hellenistic and Hebraic. We've got Jewish people who are part of the the temple area, part of Jerusalem as a whole, infighting about the way things are going. And what I notice here is that it's the Gentile Jews or the the Greek Jews, the outsider Jews, that are bringing the complaints against the organic Hebraic Jews. Which you go, it's interesting, but why is there fighting in the first place? There's clearly discontent. There's clearly an understanding that there's something going on here. But the apostles need to act quickly. The apostles need to act wisely. And their course of action beautifully diffuses the situation. It beautifully restores everyone's eyes onto Jesus. And it beautifully outlines their commitment to the vision, which is to let the unstoppable word of God go forth. We see there in verse 2, the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait tables. So you read this verse in isolation and you think, hang on, does that mean that preaching is more important than serving coffee? Is that what it's saying? 
It's definitely not saying that. But you see, the preaching of the word is of utmost importance. The preaching of the word is the goal. The preaching of the word is what the whole mission is about. The spreading of this unstoppable gospel force. It would not be right to neglect the word of God in order to wait tables. See, there's actually a priority shift here. There's an alignment. What's better? Reading the word of God? Preaching it? Serving the poor? Which one's more important? Well, they're both more important. They're both important. But do you notice that word neglect? Why is the word neglect there? It would not be right for us to do this at the expense of this. It would not be right for us to wait tables and neglect the ministry of the word. They say, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we will turn responsibility over to them. And we'll give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We see there that the proposal pleased the whole group, and they choose, chose seven blokes full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. See, they don't neglect the poor. They set structures in place that care for them. But they don't let those important parts of church life get in the road of the proclamation of the gospel. Both are important. Now, do you notice all those names, apart from not being able to pro uh, pronounce most of them, um, I'm led to believe on good authority that they're all Greek names. It's interesting, isn't it? In a fight between uh, Hebraic and Greek Jews, wouldn't you expect to see like a 5-2 uh, split or a 4-3 split? Make sure we uh, engage all the factions to make sure we get all of the opinions onto the table. It's interesting here that all of these men are Greek. Now I think it, in many cases it actually uh, it, it shows the importance of the issue. It shows that we are totally committed the apostles are totally committed to looking after the lowest, the last, and the least. They're totally committed to looking after those who are isolated. And in this particular instance, it was the Greek Jews that were the ones who were feeling neglected. Perhaps these guys were uh, more um, sensitive to the issues. Uh, perhaps they had a keener eye for seeing all of the widows. But what I love in this particular moment is all of these probably fit closer in the Gentile camp than they do into the Jew camp. See, the Greek language speakers. It means that in this care, in this social justice, in this care for the lowest, last and the least, and the proclamation of the word, we've got Jews and Gentiles coming together. Greek Jews, Hellenistic, uh, Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews working together for the gospel of God. It's a beautiful picture of inclusion and it's a beautiful precursor to the explosion of the gospel that goes to the ends of the earth. See, the predominant language at this time, amongst Jewish circles it was Aramaic, but amongst the Greek world, Greek was rampant. Surely you get your committee of management uh, together and you, you have them in the dominant language. It makes sense, doesn't it? But you see, all these people... The qualifications, 
What are they? Full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Why are they chosen? Because they are full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. None of these blokes is going to try and act on their own authority because they are full of the Spirit and they've got faith in the work of Jesus. The worst thing that could have happened at this time is uh, the apostles saying, you know what, let's find seven blokes who have got a PhD in business ethics. That would be a really, really good idea. See, the qualification here is about faith and being filled with the Spirit. And it's a beautiful picture about the future of this church. This church, our church, the global church. We see there that the, uh, the men are brought before the apostles. They have their hands laid on them and they are prayed for. You see, there's a beautiful picture here about uh, whether we do commissionings and those kind of things where we lay hands to actually set people apart for a special job, which is a fantastic idea. But you see, what they're saying is that this role is not substandard. This role is not somehow less important than the proclamation of the gospel. It is part of the package. It's part of what it means to be church. So if we're the body of Christ, then there are jobs for all of us in different ways. The apostles, well, they're the mouth of the body of Christ. These guys are the hands of the body of Christ. See, they have different roles, but they're contributing to the same goal, the same vision. See, if we're all hands, no one will be there to speak. If we're all feet, no one will be able to bend your elbow. I mean, I'm sure we've got a few appendixes of the uh, body of Christ here as well. But you see, everyone has a role to play. And this is a beautiful picture of taking people who look like they're supposed to be less important, but encapsulating them into the mission, showing that they're an important role. They're laid hands on and prayed for. Laid their hands, not paid their hands. There you go. Good old spell check, eh? But I want us to think, if the problem was established in verse 1, the solution that the uh, apostles brought was verses 2 to 6, we've actually got the outcome. We actually get the, the feedback loop on what's going on in this particular set of circumstances. See, in Satan's attempt to distract them from the word of God, what's happened? What's gone on? The word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That's, that's a pretty good outcome, isn't it? So Satan tries to distract the apostles from the proclamation of the word, tries to bring infighting and distraction to take their eyes off gospel proclamation and they say, no thanks, they hit it for six. We've got a problem, let's deal with the problem. Let's appoint suitably qualified men full of faith in the Spirit to come and work and do these jobs. And we will dedicate ourselves to what? Gospel proclamation and prayer. It is so important. But do you notice there, the number of disciples in Jerusalem is growing, that's exciting. But also, there's priests who are being saved. There are people from amongst the group who we've seen previously in Acts chapter 5 and 6 
who are set uh, against the word of God, they're set against this unstoppable force, they're trying to use corruption, they're trying to use persecution, they're trying to use distraction, but it seems as though there's priests who are recognising they're on the wrong team. They're recognising there's an issue with what they've been a part of. And they're responding to the word of God. See, recognising what's going on is absolutely vital. As a church, as a worldwide church, recognising corruption and persecution and distraction is absolutely vital to us participating in the ongoing unstoppable force of the gospel. See, any time a church gets taken down, they get taken out of the mission and sidelined. See, that doesn't defeat God. It just removes a church from the mission. They are playing over there with committee structures and, and issues and infighting. They're taken away from the main goal of going to serve the gospel. See, corruption, persecution and distractions are the tools that the devil uses to try and distract us from Jesus. I love the book, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. I, I just cannot fathom how C.S. Lewis could get himself into that mind space. Like, that is just a gift in and of itself. But so many of the things that resonate with me, they're like, you know what's the most powerful thing? Just get them distracted. Just get them to hit that snooze button. Just get them to watch that extra episode on Netflix. Just get them to... Uh, snap at their kids and not, uh, not actually engage in them well. See, distraction is so powerful. And the response, what we need to be doing, is we need to keep the main thing the main thing. We need to understand what our vision is as a worldwide church and pursue it. The proclamation of the gospel, partnering in this ongoing gospel work, and we need to not let distractions take our eyes off what's important. We need to keep the main things the main things. See, distraction is often a mechanism of habit. So when you wake up and you roll over, what do you do? Most of us reach for the phone, you check the time, you check your socials, you check to see whether you've got any text messages. See, that's a distraction mechanism. Are you being malicious every morning? Probably not. What is it? It's a habit. It's something we've trained ourselves into. It's something that if we want to stop, we actually need to train ourselves out of. So we actually need to cultivate habits that help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, help us to delight in Christ so that our love is stirred for Jesus. I actually want us to think this week about how we utilise our time, how many opportunities for distraction actually creep into our lives. I mean, I've got a list as long as my arm. There are so many things in my life that just create distraction. Distraction from the mission, distraction from God, distraction from gospel proclamation. So... I challenge you this week to actually have a look at your life. Pay attention to your habits and see actually what is cultivated in your life. See, are these things actually bringing useful uh, parts in your life? Are they bringing light into your life to help us in gospel proclamation? Or are they allowing darkness and distraction in, the tools of Satan? 
See, what do the habits of our life reveal about the condition of our heart and our soul? See, I think we actually need to consider all these opportunities for distraction. There's a hard no, saying no to the distraction and focusing ourselves. But most of the time, we actually need to think about retraining ourselves, working to get rid of poor habits, and actually working to establish good habits in their place. I know a bunch of wise uh, blokes that are working pretty hard on this at the moment, thinking about how they can not just stop doing the wrong thing, but actually start to build in habits to do the right thing day after day. See, which new habits can you actually cultivate to turn us uh, from habits that deform into habits that actually reform and transform us to participate in this unstoppable global mission? See, maybe it's the things we pay attention to. Um, no, no joke, mid-sermon this morning, I'm preaching over here, uh, and my screen time notification pops up across my slides. And uh, thankfully, it's my work computer, so I'm like, well, that's, that kind of makes sense. Um, but you just go, oh, man, I'm glad that wasn't my iPhone. So imagine if I actually showed people how much time I spent on that iPhone this week. You see, it's a distraction. And I mean, I'm paid to share the gospel with people. I'm paid to read the Bible with people. And I've got this distraction thing I carry around in my pocket. It's remarkable. What would happen if you were to pay attention to your screen time to see how much time is wasted in that particular distraction mechanism and repurpose it for good? Finding opportunities to share with a mate or go out and share the gospel with a neighbour or someone in your workplace. Well, how much better would that time be spent with a trusted friend working through gospel issues in your life? Reflecting on what is, go- what is going wrong in your life, what is going well. Spending time with someone who can pray for you. See, the apostles in Acts chapter 6 were tempted to be distracted from the gospel. They were tempted to take their eyes off the main thing and make it less important than something else. See, this week and every week, we need to keep our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus. We need to make sure we are not distracted by anything that takes our eyes off Jesus. I'm not saying give up your pastimes. I'm not saying chuck your phone in the bin and get a dumb phone. I'm not saying completely change everything about who you is as a person. But if you take your eyes off Jesus, it's a distraction that will not help. It will hurt. This morning I reflected in uh, Luke chapter 11, uh, looking at uh, the eyes as the gateway to the soul. And Jesus says, you're with me or you're against me. There is goodness and there is darkness. There is light and there is darkness. What you let into your eyes, you will either let light in that will shine through you or you will let darkness in. We love to live in a grey world. But it is black and white. We are for God or we are against him. There is darkness and there is light. We need to be particularly careful about what we do with our eyes. See, this unstoppable gospel force is amazing. 
We actually need to be looking after our responsibilities. The passage does not give us permission to shirk from our responsibilities. It does not let us throw poor people under the bus. It does not let us not worry about the Hellenistic Jews. I mean, they can go get their own food anyway. So that is not what the passage is calling us to. We are called to look after our responsibilities, but not at the expense of the gospel. They are both important. It's not one or the other, it is both. We are the body of Christ and we all have a function. We need to work together. That's what being the church is all about, functioning as the body of Christ here and now. See, Satan might have temporary success uh, destroying a little C church, a church down the road, letting a little old church wither away and die. But he can never stop God's church changing the world through the transformational power of the gospel. Satan will never have victory over the church. How do we know that? We get to the end of the Bible and we see Satan destroyed. We see the church sitting around the throne. We see people praising God for all eternity. Satan will be defeated. He will not defeat the church. See, the apostles were resolutely set on preaching the gospel. But they were also resolutely committed to care for the poor. See, good leaders, they don't do everything. They equip the Lord's people for works of service. See, why is the church unstoppable? Well, let's stop and finish with the words of Gamaliel. If their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. Let's pray together. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you use the church to change the world. We thank you for the unstoppable power of the gospel. We are thankful that you use us as part of your mission, that we are co-heirs with Christ and are useful for your work. We pray, Lord, that we would not be uh, not succumb uh, to distraction. We pray, Lord, that we would keep our eyes fixed firmly on your son Jesus all the days of our lives. Help us to keep our eyes on him and walk in his ways so one day we can arrive home to be with you forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.